Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. As you know, the show does not have a sponsor yet, but but we could. If we get a sponsor, they will support the show, keep us comfortable making lots and lots of content for you. We have one thing to ask from you in order to help us get that sponsor. One tiny thing. It's a tiny thing. One tiny thing. Go to podsurvey.com slash crime. Take a quick survey. It takes less than five minutes. It's completely anonymous. When you're finished, you can enter your email, maybe win an Amazon gift card. They give away one a month. But what's really, really important is that you take the survey because it will tell advertisers that we have listeners. Yeah, and it'll tell them what kind of listeners we have, what kinds of things you want to listen to. You know, we'll show for anything, but, you, you know, you really don't want us talking about tax preparation. <laughs> That's not cool. That isn't cool at There's all. There's so many other great things that or we could talk about. sports betting. Yeah, you know, I mean, God love you. Or sex toy catalogs. Speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway, you can help us get a sponsor, and it could be a sponsor that you are proud to have us talk about. If you do this quick survey right now, go to podsurvey.com slash crime. I hear that only a couple of people who listen to all of these podcasts actually do this survey. I bet we can do a little bit better. Please, please go there right now podsurvey.com slash crime to take the survey. Help us get a sponsor. And you might win a $100 Amazon gift card. With which you could, of course, buy some stuff at Amazon using the link at crimewriterson.com. And speaking of that link, I'd like to hear Toby read some of the items that people bought this week, wouldn't you? I would. Let's roll it. Gerber, unisex, Baby newborn three pack, neutral terry burp cloths, yellow, one size. How to sharpen pencils, a practical and theoretical treatise on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening for writers, artists, contractors, flange turners. Honeywell, V8043E1012, 24 volt. Two position, normally closed straight through three quarter inch zone valve solder connection. K and H Thermo Kitty heated cat band, sixteen inch mocha. Art of coloring Disney Frozen, one hundred images to inspire creativity and relaxation. Art therapy. The Office. I'm Toby. Men's T-shirt. Silver. XL.
I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about a grab bag of topics from catching up on the latest on the Making a Murderer Stephen Avery saga to a conversation I had with the guys behind a pair of juggernaut fiction podcasts to answering some of your questions on email and Twitter. Joining me to do all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. The truth is out there, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private eye, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening. Also joining us is noir novelist and occasional wet blanket, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello. So it's been a very big week. Stephen Avery's new lawyers, he has a very new, uh, might I say, badass legal team representing him. Kathleen Zeller is the leader of that team. She leaked a September letter from original Making a Murderer prosecutor Ken Kratz, everyone's favorite guy, a letter that he sent to Avery in jail. In it, Kratz ridiculed Avery. He expressed disappointment that Avery wasn't willing to tell him the truth. As he says, the whole truthful story to someone who then wrote a book about what actually happened is how he said murderers should tell their story. Kratz says he was willing to be that guy, but Avery wasn't interested. And as it turns out, Ken Kratz really is writing a book. Kevin, what did you think when you first read this letter and then you heard there really is going to be a Ken Kratz book? I was like, WTF is what I thought. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm the, the true crime writer. Laura's the true crime writer. We're not going around prosecuting cases in Wisconsin for crying out loud. Well, that actually brings up an interesting question. And, and Laura, you can tell me what you think of the idea of a Ken Kratz book. But first, to your knowledge, what are the ethics of writing to a defendant as a prosecutor and basically saying, talk to me to contribute to my book and I'll help make you a famous killer? Are there are there ethical lines there that Ken Kratz was crossing? Yeah, well, I mean, he's not a prosecutor anymore, so he can sort of, you know, he's no longer involved in the case. But Stephen Avery is clearly represented by counsel, so uh, he should be going through Stephen Avery's attorneys, I think. Get permission then to talk to Avery. Yeah, absolutely. And I just have to say about this Ken Katz, I mean, he says he's writing a book. I'm not seeing anywhere being reported that he's actually signed any kind of a deal on a book. So I'm curious about that part. That is true. He did tell Action News 2, Emily Matizek, that he's writing a book, quote, because the one voice forgotten to this point is Teresa Halbach. And, of course, he thinks he's now the one to, uh, as he says, he's finally grateful to tell the whole story. He tells Action 2 News. That's W-B-A-Y. We'll post a link to that story on our website, crimewriterson.com. Toby, what did you think when you read this letter and heard about this you know, Ken Kratz writing this letter to Stephen Avery and, and potentially writing a book about this case. You know, it seems kind of in keeping with his sort of clueless personality. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just don't think he knows how he comes off. I mean, I, I think I can see it seeming like a good idea to him, but I, I think he misses some of the uh, socialization somehow. Uh, and as far as writing a book, I, you know, I, I wonder what the audience for it is. I mean, it's he's such a, you know stereotyped villain at this point that I, I'm not really sure who's going to buy it. He's only good at writing 160 characters at a time, apparently. Oh, you're talking about the text scandal. Yeah. Uh-oh. Well, did, did you think that there were sort of shadows of that? We, you know, we, we saw some yeah. of those texts in the documentary, and then if you read articles about them, you could read more of them. I thought that in the manipulative way that the uh, the letter to Avery was basically 
kind of like first of all him being very sort of overconfident and goading him into trying to be the subject of a book he was he was that way with that sexual assault victim that he got into the text trouble with. Remember, this happened in 2009. He was sending text messages to a sex abuse victim. And, and I mean, tell me if this doesn't sound like him, right? It says, hey, miscommunication. What's the sticking point? Your low self-esteem and your fear you can't play in my big sandbox? Remember, he's coming on or he wants right, her, right? right. And then the other, one says, the other one says, I'm the attorney. I have the $350,000 house. I have the six-figure career. You may be the tall, young, hot nymph, but I am the prize. Oh, God. I'm sorry. See, but, but that's, ugh. you know, that's that's totally the same guy who writes that letter to Stephen Avery. Yeah, don't and, you, you can see that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and did you guys watch the um, interview he did with the comedian where he's, like, kind of coming on to her oh in the video? Oh, my God. Ugh. Can we talk about that? Okay, somebody, actually, a listener, did ask us a question specifically asking us to weigh in on that. And, Kevin, you were the one who first flagged it. So why don't you just, for the audience who hasn't seen it yet, we will post it on our website, but why don't you just describe it for us? Well, the comedian, it's a comedian, and her name is Jenna Friedman, and she does a sit-down with Ken Kratz for The Gothamist. And it's like a 10-minute video. And the first, like, four or five minutes is actually a, a very good interview. It's a little revealing. I mean, he starts off by, you know, saying that the guy he saw in the documentary and at the time says, I, I was a dick. And he says he's not that guy anymore. And then, after this kind of gets out of the way, she goes on the funniest rant with him. She says she asks him to play F. Mary Kill with him, Strong, and, and Bunting. Mm. Uh, you know, they pull out beers and start drinking, and uh, he's flirting with her. And at the end, she says, the only way to figure this out is to ask Teresa, and she pulls out a Ouija board. Oh, my God. It was just, <laughs> and he was, he oh, it was just the funniest thing, and Fun- he went with it. Funny, but also strange. Like, is it, I mean, it, it strikes me. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm one of these people that when I hear about something that's really uncomfortable, I, I actually don't. I didn't watch it because I don't. I kind of like prank calls. I, have, I like. I like love the idea of prank calls, mm-hmm. but I'd rather have them described to me than actually listen to them because it just makes me feel really uncomfortable. And when you described this to me, I was just felt so ooky around the whole thing. Um, was it? Like along the lines of um, you know, some of the other stuff we've seen him do, was it just like unbecoming for somebody who was actually involved in like a real life murder case to it, do this? Or it, it was kind of like was he duped? It, it was like a Daily Show interview. It was like that. I don't know. It just I think he got the joke, but I mean he wasn't. I don't know if he was in over his head. I don't know, Laura. You watched the video, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, as I was sitting there watching it. I couldn't get past his voice, that little <laughs> voice. And all I could envision as I was watching this is he's like luring her out back and he's like, so, you know, I, I couldn't listen. The voice is what tips me over, you know? It's just, it's creepy. It was really just creepy. To me, the the thing that, of the entire thing, the thing that I felt was like kind of most revealing of his like personality was when uh, she first proposes to play Mary F. Kill. He gets this look on his face he's like he says something along the lines of oh you're gonna get all you know sexually excited about dean strang <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, this like There's really a twinkle resentful. in your eye or something he said yeah and and it was just like oh man is he jealous you think of the attention the I positive attention I that Dean Strang's been getting? i think it's kind of like the way he goes i don't uh-huh. know I mean, we can't really say because we don't really know him well he, but he has become caricatured 
And that sort of, again, just that kind of behavior and demeanor just sort of plays and feeds into that narrative. Right, right. So it doesn't help that we've seen, yeah. that we already, also it doesn't help that we already kind of hate him. I mean, we. I, I hate to use the word hate about someone I've never met. Obviously, that's not a really a super fair thing to say, except that I have yet to meet somebody or talk to somebody who's seen the show and like learned more about Ken Kratz who can tell me a bunch of redeeming stuff that makes me feel less weird about what this guy continues to do out there well, in the public what's really, sphere. What's really weird is that the very beginning of it, and you guys back me up on this, the beginning was actually he was thoughtful and the questions were good and it was quite revealing about, you know, he was self-reflective. And look, here's a guy who has had in the past month a public comeuppance unlike any that people most get. You know, I mean, the whole thing with his sex scandal came up again, and then he was, you know, held up to public ridicule. And, and then uh, there's Reddit. And then there's Reddit. <laughs> and I thought he was thoughtful about that. And th- But I couldn't help myself. The funny stuff just came, and it was... I wasn't expecting it to be funny, and it really was. Okay, maybe I'll watch it after all. Well, then. You know, I he does, he, he does seem like he gets ambushed, and I was a little... I, I, I had pretty mixed feelings about that. But the way that he responds to some of the things, again, it's just it's it's just so off. I mean, it's just not the way somebody who supposedly has some media savvy or some self awareness should be acting, which makes it all the more like completely uncomfortable to watch. Now, Toby, I know that you listened to a piece of related media about the Avery case uh, and recommended that we do the same. Can you tell us a little bit about that Generation Y episode that you listened to and and the interesting things that maybe you pulled out of that? Maybe just tease them a little bit in case listeners want to find that and take a listen to it. Sure. Well, uh, Generation Y is a podcast that does a lot of true crime episodes and, you know, they've done well over 100 and as you would expect for that kind of podcast, they got a lot of demand to look into the Stephen Avery case. So they've got about a two-hour podcast on it. And what they essentially do is go through um, the evidence in the case. And, I, and they've seen Making a Murderer, but they've also done some other research. I, I think they do a pretty good job of sort of stepping away from sort of the emotional and uh, sort of you know, rooting aspects of making a murderer and just examine the evidence and go through it. And they come, they, they conclude that, you know, the state made its case, that Avery is most likely guilty. And, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty well reasoned. There were a few things that I thought they were completely off about. But for the most part, you know, it, it, it didn't seem unreasonable. And, um, you know, so for people who are interested in hearing sort of what the what the counter argument to making a murderer would be, you know, that's probably a pretty good place to go. They also do a little more digging into the Avery brothers, you know, his brothers and sort of their um, history of run-ins with the law and uh, sex crimes so that they provide a little more context in that way. And they also make a bigger deal of the incident where he ran his cousin, Stephen Avery ran his cousin off the road and uh, pointed a gun at her. It's acknowledged in Making a Murderer, but they make it seem like it was just like sort of one of those things. He shouldn't have done it, but he did. And It was the thing that set the whole thing in motion, you know, if we're led to believe. But they kind of come at it from the, you know, it's pretty serious. He ran a woman off the road and stuck a gun in her face. And you can't kind of 
poo-poo that. You know, you can't kind of say, oh, well, you know, it happened. So anyway, I, I again, I thought 80% of the arguments they were making I thought were, were, were reasonable. And, you know, if, if, if people want to, want to hear people talk about the other side of, of the case, that, that's not a bad place to go. Well, we, we do get that question sometimes of, you know, why don't you have somebody on who provides all the counter arguments? And, you know, to be clear, we're really just reacting to media on this show. We are sometimes, you know, we, we definitely bring our ex- particular areas of expertise to it. Laura was a defense investigator. Kevin and I have done a lot of work in true crime and, and with investigative notes. But, you know, we're not doing additional <laughs> research into these cases. We're really reacting to the media around these cases. So if you want to hear more of that media and you want to hear a podcast about with, with some guys who've done some digging, who have the other side of the story that's a little bit more detached, we will post a link to that Generation Y episode on our website, Crime Right on.com. Now, Stephen Avery does have a new lawyer, as I mentioned, a famous one at that. Her name's Kathleen Zellner, whose firm has overturned many convictions. So we should be expecting a lot more developments in the story in the coming months. But I've already seen some inklings out there of people complaining about Stephen Avery fatigue online. I'm wondering if any of you are feeling that, or is there a point at which you might you feel like you're done talking about this case? Uh, Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think I'm coming close to that line. I think I've, I've come to that line with the, the uh, non case. I'll follow it once it's back in the news in court. Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it tends to be a point where there's overexposure. And e- even though, uh, you, know, I just think, you know, we binge watched it, but I also felt like we binged ate it. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I want to go take a nap. What about you, Toby? Is there a point at which you could be done talking about this case? Do you feel that point coming? Uh, I guess it, it depends on what people sort of arguing the other side of it come out with if there's something what a contrarian response (laughs) (laughs) no i'm I'm serious like i don't need to hear any more about how stephen avery was set up or you know that the manitowoc county sheriff's department is crooked if there's somebody who's going to come out with some interesting compelling piece about how that's not the case and it was something else you know yeah i i would i would find that interesting but I, again, I, I think there was this like brief, really intense period of interest, and I, I was caught up in it too. But I think that side of the case has been kind of argued out at this point. What about you, Laura? Scale of one to ten, how close are you to being done talking about the Avery case, or do you have plenty more bandwidth to go? Um, I'm at eight. I have a kind of a short attention span, and you know, it is definitely interesting. It's something that gets me fired up um, with all of my defense background, but. I feel like at this point, there's not really any new information coming out that's making me feel like I need to pay that much attention right now. Okay. Well, you know what? On this note of, you know, sort of being done talking about it, we're going to pivot a little bit and answer some questions and comments from our audience if you guys are up for it. And I want to revisit a question on Twitter that we got this past week. We've been recommending the true crime documentary, The Staircase, and we did have a tweeter ask us about why it isn't Michael Peterson didn't clean the blood in his stairway after the... Uh, his his wife was killed in the stairway or died in the stairway. And I responded on Twitter that, you know, it was because it was going to be evidence in the trial. And the person said, I don't understand. And then I said something about the jury view. And we had a bunch of questions. People wanted, wanted to know about jury views. And here in New Hampshire, the jury view is pretty common. And Laura, I know that you have a, an interesting story about that. Do you want to just describe what a jury view is and uh, tell us your jury view anecdote? 
Yeah, so a jury review uh, typically takes place in New Hampshire before, um, even before opening arguments. And the jurors all get on a bus that has been sort of, you know, hired by the court to take them out to the scene or different scenes that relate to this case. So usually the scene of a murder or scenes where certain things happen so that they can sort of get a sense of where things are when the evidence is actually being presented. So my, my jury review story was I was working for the Associated Press covering the first death penalty case to go to trial in New Hampshire in like 50 years. Um, it was a multimillionaire businessman who was accused of orchestrating um, this really horrific, brutal death of a handyman who worked for the him. John Brooks case? You, you the John that? Brooks trade. Yeah, yes. yes. And so, you know, it's like my first day and the guy in this case that was murdered, it was just a horrific murder. They lured him to this barn out in Deerfield, New Hampshire, which is a very remote area. Um, and supposedly, you know, knocked him down, zip-tied him, and beat him with a sledgehammer. And so, you know, I was curious to see this place, but I lost the bus because they were driving so fast, and I'm like, I'm going to lose my job. And I was speeding along, and I was following this girl from the Concord Monitor, which is another paper, and I was following someone from the union leader, and I I did lose the bus um, at one point, but I found them again. (laughs) Were you following Sarah Koenig? (laughs) No, I was not. She was at the monitor then, huh? I was following Anne-Marie Timmons. Oh, okay. um, Yes, and... (laughs) So I did get to see the barn, and and it really, I think, seeing that as a reporter, but also as a juror, and you see this little wooden horse stall where this guy was killed, but really sort of put the whole thing in perspective when you heard the evidence in the case. Yeah, jury view is very common, and like you said, in New Hampshire, it happens before any of the opening arguments. In a lot of states, it happens, you know, midway through the trial. I remember, like, the O.J. Simpson case. I guess I'm the only one on the panel who remembers the O.J. Simpson no, case. No, I remember the O.J. Okay. Simpson case. Uh, but uh, the jurors went to O.J.'s mansion, like, in the middle of the of the you know the trial and a lot was made about how they cleaned the house and they made sure his Heisman Trophy was out where right. it could be seen and everything. And the defendant gets to be there during the jury sure. view, which is sometimes a, a kind of a strange component. In one of our books, the jury went to view and the scene was the the guy's house and he was just sort of standing on the stoop as the jurors were walking out of his house, almost like he was greeting guests. Like it was a really odd scene. Yeah, it, the reason and I think Laurel backed me up. The the the, the rationale be behind having the jurors go before they hear any arguments is that it, that the view is untainted by attorneys saying, look at that, and look at that. The only thing, the only instructions they're sort of allowed to give are just, they'll say, just try to notice the distance between the street and the front door or something like that. But they don't, they, they aren't making specific arguments and, and feeding stuff. It's just so, again, the jurors can be acquainted with locations versus it reinforcing some testimony that they've already heard. Right. And in the Peterson case, it was really striking because there was so much blood in the stairway and also because as a viewer, so much of the action in that documentary takes place in that house while they are meeting with lawyers. You see Peterson with his family talking about the case and they're in this house and the staircase goes off the kitchen and they'll be in the kitchen eating sandwiches yeah. and walking by the crime scene it's, tape. It's very true that every bit of blood spatter was important evidence, but it's got to be weird to like go up to bed every night and walk past this. No, they're using the other staircase I think, oh, to go God. to bed at night. Jackson Pollock. <laughs> 
is yeah. very, very strange. Okay, um, Toby, question for you. Adnan Syed's hearing is coming up, I believe, February 3rd, February 4th, the, new, the new dates of his hearing. And we have a listener who wants to know, have you changed your original opinion in Adnan's guilt or innocence since serial season one ended with everything we've heard and undisclosed with this much time passing? Has anything changed for you as to whether or not Adnan is innocent or guilty? Toby, have you thought about that at all? Uh, yeah, I guess I've thought about it a little bit. I... I... I guess I don't feel like I have a real strong handle on his guilt or innocence. It seems that Undisclosed has done a pretty comprehensive job of of tearing apart the prosecution's case. So, you know, I I, I think it seems more likely that he would get off now. But again, does that mean he's not guilty? You know, I, I don't know. I know I keep bringing this up and that some people said, well, that's not what the defense has to do. But what's the more compelling alternative explanation for what happened would be helpful to me, at least, in making an assessment, I guess. Well, one question that came in for me is, will you be attending the Syed trial? The answer is no. I will not be attending the Syed hearings. I'm sure we'll get some excellent reporting from those hearings from the ground there. I'm sure it will be very, very interesting. Laura, question for you, and maybe you can respond to this too, Kevin. Miranda asked, isn't it abnormal for the state and defense to hold a press conference daily during a trial? Clearly, you're talking about the Stephen Avery trial here. I don't see that happening around here, she says. And when the state announced Brendan's confession on TV, didn't they pretty much assure a tainted jury pool basically anywhere in the state? Laura, what do you think about that question? Yeah, um, absolutely. And this is something I think I've said before that I was just astounded by the level of media access that happened in this trial. I've never seen um, attorneys on either side of a case comment so thoroughly while a trial is going on, even um, at one point commenting on the judge's rulings as the case was going on. But the initial press conference where Ken Kratz goes through this extremely detailed list of what happened to Teresa Halbach, you know, that is, you know, could come up into question in terms of witnesses that are testifying to things. And the question is, did they see this on TV? Or is this something they actually have knowledge about? I was I was really astounded by this. And I don't know if this is just a difference in how different states handle this. But, you know, here in New Hampshire, I've never seen that happen. Well, it has happened at least on one notable occasion here in New Hampshire. And, of course, Kevin, I'm talking about the Pam Smart trial with the press putting information out that potentially could have interfered with what the jury thought about Pam Smart. And in that great HBO documentary we saw, a really fun HBO documentary about Pam. It's called Captivated. Yeah, I think we've talked about it before on this podcast. It was actually about that, about whether or not the jury was exposed to too much before and during the trial. What what did you think of those press conferences? I was surprised, yeah, with the daily ones. I I can understand there's a need... You know, I was a reporter. You got to feed the beast, and if you sit in the courtroom all day, and you're, <laughs> you, uh, you have to come up with a story for five and six, and something for the guy at eleven o'clock to do too. So, you know, getting uh, the, you know, it, it would be my dream to be able to have a daily press conference. Uh, it, I just don't see that happening often. It would, it only would happen in a, in a giant trial like that where there would be a demand. I think that the problem with the the the, the press conference after the Brendan Dassey arrest really painted the prosecution into a corner because they basically said this is what ha- they laid out the whole case. This is the theory of the crime. This is the th- they, they said, this is the th- they said, this is what happened. Right. And then th- they weren't able to back that up. 
you know, much like just much like in serial season one, we're finding that the evidence doesn't necessarily fit the state's theory of the crime. You know, we know that the the whole uh, Brendan Dassey confession is mushy at best, and a lot of the details don't fit up with what happened to Teresa uh, Halbach. There seems to be more evidence that she was murdered and transported in the back of her RAV4 than chained to the bed. So I don't know. All right. Well, I have a follow-up question for you. I'd like you to answer this first. And then, Toby, uh, we got a very long email that I'm not going to read all of. Kevin, you can see it's oh wow many pages here. And this is from a very, very nice listener who I want to say in advance really loves our show and says it many times in this email that he loves our show. And he just has a lot of um, input about different things that we've talked about. But the thing I want to point out in particular is what he put first in his email, because usually you think you put first what your most strenuous, you Mm -hmm. know, point is. So this is what he has to say. His name is Alexander. I thought you were really unfair on Nancy Grace. (laughs) For one thing, a lot of the things you argue against Grace could be argued against making a murderer. This documentary is clearly biased towards Avery's innocence, and they have admitted they left a lot of stuff out, but it's okay because it's, quote, not relevant. As you say, she comes from a pro-prosecution perspective that's perfectly legitimate, and frankly, that corrective to the widespread bias against law enforcement is necessary. Now, he goes on a little bit here about how we're critical of Grace for her certainty. We're critical of Grace because she's sure of what she thinks and that we're just a little too hard on Nancy Grace. Kevin, um, reminding you again that Alexander's a fan of our show. Love Alexander. (laughs) Do you think you were too hard on Nancy Grace? We were too hard on Nancy Grace. I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, I still have a problem with Nancy Grace's style that I think it's abrasive and I think it you know, I, I said, like, you know, in a lot of these cases that she's talking about, she's not wrong. That, you know, the person that she paints to be the villain, the defendant, a lot of times did it, you know, and deserves to go to trial and, and, and deserves to be punished by our, our judicial system. Um, but I don't know. I mean, she's just, she's not my cup of tea. Uh, Toby, do you think that we were too hard on Nancy Grace? Uh, you know, my sample size for Nancy Grace is very, very small. <laughs> what, the, uh, with the one episode that you watch on YouTube? Yeah, with the part of one episode I watch. You know, so I, you know, she, she's obviously been doing this for years. A lot of people like her. I, I'm sure there's, there's something to the show. I, I, I agree with Kevin in that part of it was the presentation. And again, I, I just watched this one, but it was basically she had all these guests on who got about 10 seconds to agree with her or she moved on to the next one. Yeah, so probably unfair based on how little I know about her. But that one little clip was was some tough watching. I did get some emails this week uh, with some information about Nancy Grace's career as a prosecutor and that it did not end well, that um, one of the articles that someone sent me described her as a disgraced former prosecutor, that there were some questions about um, her ethics when she was in the prosecution. I'm going to look some of that up and post some of that on our website so that you can all read that for yourselves and make your own call. But there is, you know, some, I think, other controversy around Nancy Grace. And as far as her broadcasting style, I don't think we were too hard on her. I think She's really, really tough to watch, and I think she's not a good moderator. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go on a ledge and say that. I'm comfortable uh, saying, Alexander, I love you too, but I don't think we were too hard on Nancy Grace. I think she deserves it. Okay, a couple more quick questions for us to answer. Um, here's a fun one, and by fun, I mean really dark. Laura? <laughs> All right. I'd actually, whoever would like to weigh in, this is great, but I'd like Laura to go first. Laura, to you, who is the most interesting serial killer and why? Oh, God. Um... 
You know, I don't know if I have a most interesting serial killer. I, I have a most interesting unsolved case, but I, I don't really have a most interesting unsolved case, serial well, killer. Well, tell us about your most interesting unsolved case then. Well, I hinted at it a little bit last week when I was talking about the perfect murder weapon, the anesthesia drug. Um, and that came up because there was a 30-year-old. Is they it? just call it sucks for short because I guess it's just too hard to pronounce. Because so it the, sucks if you get it. It does suck if you get it. So in the doctor world, they just call it sucks. Give me some sucks. So this is a really interesting case that I have followed now. Um, it happened back in 2009, and there was a 38-year-old nurse um, who lived out here on the New Hampshire seacoast who was found dead in her condo. And... The, the investigation went on for a long time, and finally the attorney general's office in the state that handles homicide cases ruled it an accidental drug overdose. But people knew that there was something funny about this. Um, she had gone grocery shopping. When they found her, she was, you know, dead in her condo. Her groceries were still on the counter. So it seemed like sort of an odd way for somebody to accidentally overdose before they even put their groceries away. What came out was that she was an acquaintance, and I will leave it at that, um, with an anesthesiologist that she worked with, a male anesthesiologist. And the police found sucks in his trunk of his car. But as I said last week, you can't trace that in your system. So there were some other anesthesiology, like, you know, drugs in her system that they attributed her death to. But the fact that this guy had sucks in his car was very interesting. Um, they actually came out and said they're not going to press charges against him. But... I have always wondered about this case. That sounds like an interesting case. Toby, do you yes. have a, uh, a most compelling serial killer and or unsolved true crime? I don't really. Yeah, serial killers are so grim. It's hard for me to get past that. That being said, I, the movie Zodiac I thought was really good, which was the, uh, the hunt for the Zodiac killer around San Francisco. With Mark Ruffalo, who was one of my favorite yeah. actors, yes. Yeah, so I thought that was, that was really good. But yeah, I don't really, I'm not like a serial killer aficionado or anything like that. <laughs> I, I'm not either, but actually my, the most compelling serial killer for me also comes from a movie. There was a movie that was on about John Wayne Gacy. It was actually a made-for-television movie. The movie's called To Catch a Killer. It was on when I was a kid, and every time this movie came on, I would feel compelled to watch it. It is incredibly scary. Brian Dennehy plays John Wayne Gacy in this film, and really what it's about is how law enforcement completely changed the way they do business when they realized there was something going on with John Wayne Gacy, and it actually became the model for the way cases like that are investigated in the way that suspects are basically hunted then by the police who are investigating them. And it is a terrifying film. It is really well acted, very long, kind of grimly shot, um, very good. And of course, Brian Dennehy, an amazing actor, plays the creepiest probably serial killer, one of them anyway, in American history. John Wayne Gacy. Kevin, do you have any crimes you want to weigh on with before we move on? No, I mean, just like for serial killers, I'm going to sound like a homer here, but I'm kind of partial to Sheila Labar. Well, yeah. Female yeah. serial killer. Um, Dear and, Sheila. Yeah, there's a great book called Sheila the Peeler. Called <laughs> Wicked Intentions by Kevin Flynn, and uh, you can get it now for $7.99. And there's a great episode of the podcast Criminal on which you discuss your interactions with Sheila Labar. I believe that episode is called Dear Sheila. We'll post a link to that on our website as well. Final question, Toby. Can we have a whole hour of Toby doing Amazon purchases? It's strangely relaxing. And this one from Ashley to accompany it. Really enjoy your podcast. Keep up the great work. Have found Toby's read of items purchased through Amazon link. The highlight of the show. 
And who would have thought that would be so entertaining? Be careful. He may break away and start his own podcast based on the popularity of this segment. Toby, are we going to lose you when you become a professional Amazon.com items reader? I've been talking to Kanye. (laughs) (laughs) Thought maybe getting together and doing some creative stuff. Um, Yeah, I don't. I don't see a big future in that, quite honestly. And so finally, we got another question on Twitter that happens to be an excellent segue into the next part of our show. Somebody asked, what do you think of the storytelling in the Tannis podcast? It's touched on just about every conspiracy theory out there. Well, it's funny you should ask that question because just this week I talked to the two guys behind the Tannis podcast and the Black Tapes podcast. Two notes before I play this conversation. It gets into a lot of things. We talk about story crafting. We talk about what works, what doesn't work, why they got into podcasting. You don't actually have to have listened to these shows or all of these shows or even some of these shows in order to get the gist of most of what we talk about. But you can feel free to skip ahead 15 minutes or so if you'd like. But I recommend listening because these guys are really great. One second note, these podcasts are fiction, the Black Tapes and Tannis, but they're made to sound like real stories reported by a journalist. And the two guys who make these shows, they didn't quite want to let me behind that curtain and talk about these podcasts as fiction. You'll see what I mean when we get to that part. Okay, so let's just get to it. We will continue our conversation on the other side. I'm just going to let them introduce themselves. My name is Paul Bay, and I uh, live in Vancouver. I'm a was a high school teacher, stand-up comedian, uh, writer. Uh, I'm regularly on CBC Radio, which is our in Canada our big public radio station, nationally funded. And I was acting in Terry's first movie, first test movie. Yeah, yeah, and that's how we became friends. Huh? And so, Terry, you're you're a filmmaker. Yeah, I started as a musician, and then I um, quickly moved over into. To another medium, it was very difficult to make a living, um, film, um, and it just takes so long to, I've had a few films at Toronto and, and um, have had some success in, in film, uh, but it just takes so long and so much money to make a movie, it's, it's very frustrating. So I was getting really tired of, of the amount of time it took and always just begging for money, and I, I've, I've loved podcasts since the, uh, since the beginning. Um, you know, the old KCRW stuff and, and when This American Life started. And I just have always had people in my ears. So I came over to Paul's house and I said, we gotta, we got we to gotta start making podcasts. Yeah, and we'd heard about this Strand character through our friend Alex. Uh, and that's how it all started. Just We just let, let them have the ball and run with it. So the story like drove the production then is what you're aiming at there. Yeah, our initial love is for the NPR you know, the the journalistic style of podcasting, which we still love today, the sort of gimlet media model. But uh, things started to get kind of spooky. So uh, that's that's where we went. And we, <laughs> we love um, horror stuff. Yeah, we absolutely love horror stories. So and we're big fans of it. We, Terry and I would always talk about it. So when this opportunity showed itself, we just... You had to jump aboard. So I actually want to ask you a question about the journalistic style of storytelling, because it seems like just about all of the serialized drama podcasts that I listen to, you know, yours among them, that is the framing device. The framing device is I am a reporter and I am discovering this story along with you. Very This American Life, very Sarah Koenig-esque, you know, reporter-driven investigative framework for these stories. 
Can you imagine another framework that would also work? I mean, do you think that the podcast that you continue to produce will will stick with that as the framing device, or would you try something else? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, we were definitely the first podcast <laughs> to uh, use this uh, framing device. I mean, we've listened to a lot of the, the, the fictional versions of this. Yeah, like Welcome to Nightville, and they have a, a different universe-type small community radio host but uh, in terms of this style, I don't know if we could do, uh, use another. Well, it just feels like, but when, when you talk about the fictional ones, right, um, it just feels like there, there's something about having that trusted voice in your ears that is just more fun than the old time radio play version, you know? Like our fans are incredible and they'll, they trust Alex and they'll, they'll just go along with her. And I, yeah. think, I think I like that dynamic. It is an interesting dynamic, and it actually has led us on the podcast that I do to talk with, you know, the other writers on the panel. And one question that comes up over and over again, and it's come up a lot around the first season of Serial, is whether or not the story is Adnan Syed's, you know, potential wrong conviction or whether or not the story is Sarah Koenig's story, you know, her, her exploration of the case and her taking us through her experience reporting it, the people she meets, you know, the things that she uncovers and which one is it that really gets you hooked. And we kind of go back and forth on that. So it sounds to me like you guys really tune in to the things that you like listening to because of the guide. Yeah, I don't know. It's just comforting. And it's exactly what you say about cereal. I mean, that that makes perfect sense. It, it does swing back and forth. The thing about cereal that really struck me is that uh, people often forget we talk about objective journalism, but we forget that it's all still mediated through a viewpoint anyway. So with Sarah, Sarah, she just sort of got rid of that and allowed herself to feel things out loud and experience things and allow the, the, the listeners to, to see that. And I thought that was very brave of her to do that. Yeah, I feel the, I feel the same way. I mean, it's uh, one, one of my favorite filmmakers in the world is Krzysztof Kieslowski, and, and he quit making documentaries because he felt he could get closer to the truth through fiction. And there's some element of truth in that even in the non-fiction world by sort of if you look at something like making a murderer i mean there's just something about what you leave out is just as important as what you put in so have you guys watched making a murderer sure yes this has been a very big topic on my show the last couple of weeks you know serial went on a little break so we talked about that and as it turns out that really seems to be the story that's really capturing a lot of people's imaginations right now. And it really is that, you know, I I think there is the did he or didn't he or whatever, but there's also just the, the idea that things that we come to believe are true, like, for example, cops and prosecutors are good guys. <laughs> you know, that's sort of all being like, turned around on its head. I'm curious, you know, you, you're both Canadian, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So your experience with I mean, this is an assumption. Sorry, it's a stereotyping here. I'm assuming, because I'm a stereotypical American, that your experience with law enforcement and authority is seen through a different lens than the American experience of law enforcement and authority. And I'm wondering, what do you think of the goings-on in making a murderer? Is it something that seems completely foreign and crazy as a Canadian? Or is, is it something that uh, you see that kind of stuff happen all the time where you live as well? I've, I've never heard of that happening in Canada, but I don't follow. I don't follow uh, <laughs> police enforcement stories all the time. But this, anything approaching that, uh, like even personally, 
Oh, when I lived downtown, you know, downtown, downtown Vancouver, I lived in a party building and we'd have to call the police once in a while. And we would know each other by first name by this point because they're like, oh, Paul, you're trying to break up a fight or something. It's the, the every police encounter I've had. And I'm a man of color. Uh, it's been very, very positive in Canada. Um, but then again, every time I come to the States, it's also been positive. So... I think there's something else going on down there. So I want to talk a little bit about Black Tapes first. Pacific Northwest Stories, it's the name of your sort of overarching content brand. And in the Black Tapes podcast, we hear about it. And it's like um, a show out of which this podcast has been spun. I think that there are some things about it that are reminiscent of the X-Files. There's sort of like this longer story. And then there are these sort of standalone stories within the story. Is the idea here that this will be able to go on in perpetuity or is the hope that Alex will at some point solve the bigger question and that there will be an end to the black tapes? Or are there black tapes that will continue to be discovered? I think we want Alex to solve the mystery, but we're okay with following her as long as it takes. Yeah. As long as it's interesting. I will say for the record, I don't think she's actually solved a single one of them yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, think, I think that you might be right, but she's uh, still trying. She's pretty... Pretty dedicated. Yeah. So Alex Regan meets this guy, Dr. Strand, and he's this outsider in his profession. She's looking at, you know, paranormal investigators, and he's now he's a debunker. And, you know, somehow the two of them end up together going on a bunch of adventures, and they always seem to end up in the same place at the same time, which I find very interesting. And there seems to be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm overstepping here, but is there like a little bit of a chemistry brewing between the two of those, uh, Alex and yeah. Dr. Strand? <laughs> it's, it's it's the fringes of a friendship uh, seems to be forming, or I think, I'd, but it's it's really hard to tell because Strand doesn't let. Well, I haven't really talked to him. Without, I don't think I'll speak too much out of school, and I say that we did meet with my cousin Nick about a little bit of creative editing that might be leading in a, diff, a certain direction. We we don't want to get you know accused of um, <laughs> sensationalizing their relationship. But, they're, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of shipping going on between uh, Dr. Strand and Alex Regan online. Well, it sure seems like he's always willing to meet her for coffee or whatever, you know, at, the, at, at any time, no matter how busy he seems to be. And Nick is your cousin. That must be why you guys sound so much alike. I was wondering that. Yeah, we get that all the time. Sometimes it feels like we're the same person almost. <laughs> So what, what about the, the transition from film to podcast making? I know that at least in the credits of Tannis, which, by the way, as a radio producer, I'll tell you, is a beautifully produced show. It sounds it's a, it's a gorgeous sounding show. It's a it's a well written show in terms of just the, the bare prose of the show. The foley on the show is great. It doesn't have a lot of extraneous Excuse the expression, Limetownish Foley, which was one of my biggest gripes about that podcast. Was when someone smoked a cigarette, it sounded like they were breathing through an oxygen tank. Um, it's just, it's, it just, it's, it sounds just really, really, really slick, really good. And I'm wondering how much easier or harder, or is it like a similar making a film, making a podcast of that quality, something that is as polished as, especially as Tannis is. Well, yeah, it's. Um I, I did think it was going to be easier at first <laughs> uh, with the black tapes, but having done the black tapes when it came to Tannis, rather than just do the same kind of thing, I thought it would be a, a, a good idea if we layered 
like it, just to create a different sort of sonic presentation for for Tannis. So yeah, I think that it's my background is is music at, at and I used to produce and engineer my own albums back in the ancient times. So those skills were there and um as far as how how much more uh, the comparing it to making a film, it's it's pretty similar because I edit all my films. As someone who edits their own movies, that part of the process is almost exactly the same. And then of course Podcasts involve production as well, and they involve writing. So the one nice thing is there's less people. Right. <laughs> and, and there's no jury to tell me that uh, that we need to change something. You know, it's, it's, it's a very streamlined. So th- that's the really nice thing about it. And that's what something like Paul and I, you know, are really excited about is I, I can click the mouse and it's distributed. Yeah. I mean, I think that is. I mean, that's something that I've really been amazed by, too, is I'm... I'm really accustomed to working with a team. I work in a newsroom now and, you know, everything gets an edit. Everything is a process. And basically, I've grown a show from scratch making all of the decisions pretty much myself, trying things, experimenting. And if people are with you with podcasting, they're really with you. It's not like a TV show where they kind of like tune out. They, I mean, I think the only thing that you can say is, you know, I, again, feel awful because it's so un-Canadian of me. But when I hear other like really popular podcasts that just are bad, it really gives me a tremendous amount of hope about the opportunities and, you know, the idea that somebody can make something and like a million people could listen to it. It's really something. Yeah. Well, I I was a listener of your podcast well before you contacted us or me, whoever it was. (laughs) Well, that's very nice of you to say. So I want to talk a little bit about Tannis. First of all, I hope you don't mind my saying I'm a little bit confused. There are a lot of people. I could use like an infographic or something to sort of help me sort out who some of the people are. And Nick in particular has a storytelling style where something will happen and you're getting there and then he'll say, I'll come back to that in a bit. And then he does something else and then he comes back to that that bit. And then you have to, you know, you really have to kind of remember, you know, who's who and what's going on. And I think that's part of the charm of the show, frankly. I'm not, it it may have sounded like I was going toward insulting the show, but I actually, that's one of the reasons why I like it because it's a little bit challenging. Is that how you thought this was going to turn out when you began the Tannis project and Nick began trying to chase down whatever this Tannis thing is? Well, that sort of structural stuff is something that we found along the way. I think that sort of started with the black tapes that sort of um, will be, we'll come back to this in a little. It's just, I think Nick does it a little more than Alex. And I think it's just a function of the storytelling, like just the way that it seems to flow. Like it's, it's time to go away from this part right now, you know, because it's almost, you know, like um, two plot streams kind of, dovetailing and then coming back i i don't know it's uh i'm, I'm floundering tennis is so complicated um no i i realize as you're talking you're actually what you're describing is you're making this podcast like a film is made it's sort of scenes that that cut between each other but but nick is narrating and telling you he's cutting a scene instead of it just being that other scene that's kind of what's happening yeah i think that that's absolutely right and i think that it does come from the film side as I have a lot of editorial, you know, in, in, <laughs> input there. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely a, a cinematic set of minds that work on these on this television for your ears or whatever we're, we're calling mm-hmm. it nowadays. One of my favorite things about Tannis is the folding in of other 
true known stories. You know, the the story of the young woman who drowned in the water tank at the top of that Los Angeles hotel. Then you have we've got a little peek at Charles Manson is a little is a we've got a little peek of him being folded into the story. We've we, we we've gotten some glimpses of other you know historical pop cultural moments overlaid with this Tannis legend. Who does all of the research looking back at those stories? Because they do get very rich in detail as Nick is telling them. Yeah, Nick and I both. I mean, it's it's uh, that's one of the most exciting things about the whole the whole process is is learning and and that was a mandate right off the top. It's go go really deep and and textured and layered and and, and try to anything that comes up where the Tannis myth is concerned to explore whatever surrounds that in a kind of educational way. You know, so it doesn't feel like it's just, you know, sort of um, straight ahead storytelling that you don't have to you look anything up. I mean, I feel like there's a there's a Google component to, to Tannis where it's enriched by by learning about the some of the crazy other things that, that really happen in the world. Paul, I have a question for you. Um, you were an actor, a comedian, right? And a writer, too? Yeah. So, you know, hearing that what you've experienced is that there is this phenomenon that podcasts like the ones you're making that can tell complicated stories that can be like a little more straightforward. I think Black Tapes is a little bit more straightforward than Tannis, for example, but still compelling in that I think it gets real creepy on certain episodes, like really creepy. This idea that we are so ready to listen to stories again in our ears, you know, with no visuals, it's kind of, you know, people call it the podcast renaissance, but do you think that this medium is bringing back something that we all were just really missing as human beings in in our entertainment experience? I think the thing I love about podcasting is that it brings back a sense of intimacy with the storyteller. Uh, When we're watching other forms of media uh, in terms of storytelling, it, it feels very communal. You go to a theater, you're with other people. When you're watching TV, when you're with family, uh, when you're in the car listening to the radio, it's, it's someone else might be in the car and so forth. But with the podcast, it's just you and one other person who's speaking the story to you. And I think there's something very primal, something very immediate, very there's some kind of um, dynamic going on between you and another person who, you don't, who you'll never meet in your life probably. But you, you end up trusting that person. And it's, I think there's something within us that likes being told a story by a person sitting right next to us. It's, it's very comforting. Um, like I think about Tannis. Tannis is this huge cosmic horror. And you can exist, if you really get into it, you can feel this existential, whether loneliness, isolation. But because Nick is telling me this story, it's, it's not so scary because I'm, I'm with this person who's telling me the story. And, he, and he's going through with me. So I think the podcast is bringing back... It's not introducing so much anything new for me, but bringing back something very basic and maybe uh, essential to us. It is that primary relationship with the with the storyteller, but there's also in the world that we live in, there's also a huge sense of sort of community in the way that we sort of have communal experiences today, which is a lot online. But but I feel like when I listen to I don't know uh, what do I listen to ninety nine percent invisible when I finish it. There are millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people who have had the same experience. So it feels like communal as well as individual. For, yeah, you know, I, th- like, I think I think right now um, I, used, I used on stage uh, when I used to do comedy because I quit. <laughs> I used to joke about uh, that loneliness is going to be the next big epidemic 
you know, it, it never, it never, it always bombed that joke. <laughs> it's, just, it's not funny, but I, I feel like it's really depressing, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like you know, and there's been studies going around saying, you know, talking about a, a generational loneliness. That might, this might be the loneliest generation. I think podcasts tap into something. What Terry was just talking about this connectedness with other other people. Like, like if you know, you, we're on Twitter. Uh, I see you on Twitter. You see me on Twitter. I see Terry, and you, you get the sense of fellow listeners uh, sharing the sense of community. And it might just be social media, but there, there is a sense that there's a strong bond there between fellow listeners. Okay, I have a couple more questions about, and I'm going to ask Paul this question because I don't think that Terry will be honest in his answer. He obfuscated a little bit when I asked about Alex and Dr. Strand. Uh, Paul, what do you think is going on between Nick and Mere Catnip? Oh, um... <laughs> I had a little bit of fun. Uh, I was teasing Nick because I guess people online have been shipping uh, Mere Catnip and Nick. Um, I haven't met her. So my, te- my, my mind always tends, tends to wander towards shipping rather than non-shipping. Right? So I'm always asking Nick, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, oh you're busy with anyone? You know, just I know he's busy. I know, but I'm not, I shouldn't say anymore because it's Terry's cousin. And Terry's going to tell him. And, yeah. and, and what's the ship name that they're using? Oh, Mir. Mir Katnik. Yeah, Mir Katnik. <laughs> Do Alex and Dr. Strand have a ship name? Yes, Stralix. That's <laughs> terrible. I, we just found that recently online. A lot of our fans have been shipping them too. So. Yeah. Way, uh, way more. So, uh, so are you guys working on any other shows that are in development right now? Yeah. Uh, we got a true crime one. We, we, we'd rather we'd, we can't talk about, it, but as soon as it's, we'll contact you, especially right away, as soon as that one comes out. Way to get specific, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we we thought we'd be launching it uh, pretty quick, but with, with um, having two shows on right now, this overlap is uh, surprisingly chaotic. I guess yeah. that's a, that's a limitation. But anyway, I'm I'm a big fan of your work. I think that you guys are doing a really good thing for the rest of us in the space and um, I don't know. I hope that we can stay in touch on social media and stuff. I think you guys are great. No, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah this, sure. Is, this is great. I, I love your show, and too. And I promise I promise that what we'll do with you will not be what happened with Maura Murray, where I talked to those two guys, and then we spent the rest of the hour trashing their podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Guys, so you guys ready to trash Tannis podcast? I mean, to be clear, we obviously didn't trash Missing More Murray. However, we did get some criticism for talking to the guys from Missing More Murray and then critiquing, shall I say, Ugh, that podcast. Kevin's yeah. <laughs> still not quite no, over I feel, that. I feel badly because I, I, you know, I think they're good guys and everything. I just. I don't know. I didn't want. I didn't want to discourage. I was more discouraged with the the author that they were dealing with. Yeah. Anyway, Just, yeah. Let's, don't, let's, don't listen to that. Episode. Let's let's, let's yeah. move on. I I stand behind it. I think it's fair to give. I mean, this is what this show is about. Maybe putting them in the same episode was not uh, the most polite, most Canadian thing I could have done. But um, you know, let's move. We've moved on. Toby, you listen to Tannis, correct? I love Tannis. First of all, isn't it hilarious to hear Terry talk? I mean, the, and immediately when you hear his voice, you're like, oh, he plays Nick. That's like really funny, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just found that so charming and uh, awkward, but charming at the same time. But he, he steps on his accent in the podcast, doesn't he? A little bit. He still says process 
and longitude in the podcast. I mean, there's definitely some, some sorry, sorry, some real Canadianisms going on there. One of the things we heard him talk about in my conversation with them was um, being able to get closer to the truth through fiction, and how his favorite filmmaker quit making documentaries because you know he wanted to be closer to his own feelings and his own emotions. Now, you're a fiction writer. When when he said that, did that ring true with you? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, really good fiction can do that. And I think actually a lot of really good nonfiction is also does that as well. You know, David Foster Wallace, who a lot of people think is sort of the best nonfiction essayist of the last, you know, 20 years or whatever, you know, his his nonfiction essays were largely made up, <laughs> you know, even beyond just fiction. I think I think people who sort of write on the edges of nonfiction are, are certainly willing to play with the exact truth in order to get to something that they feel uh, has sort of more a deeper truth than just the just the surface. Is that what you like about Tannis, that sort of blending of fiction and nonfiction that they do in the show? Yeah, kind of. I, I just, you know, I like conspiracy stuff. <laughs> and this is like the biggest conspiracy there is. It involves everybody and everything's connected, and but it's not completely clear how. And I just, it, it kind of hits my sweet spot for things that I'm interested in. And it's it's so complicated that if you were to ask me, like, what happened two episodes ago, you know, I don't know if I could give you much of a synopsis. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> but it's just, you know, you just get this feeling that wherever they go, there's like these these bits of it are there. And it's it is kind of ominous. And so anyway, I, I, I think it's really good. I love it too. And I, you heard me tell him that I thought it was really confusing and I felt like I needed an infographic. But um, to me, it's almost like listening to music. Like it's not even about the story. It's about listening to the to the delivery of the story. And I don't know. I, I, it's one, I don't know why I like it so much. I just really, really do. I think they're really onto something there. You well, know, you, you said that and, uh, and I hadn't really thought about this and I'm sure people are going to be like, what the hell are you saying? But uh <laughs> It, it seems a little bit like when I try and read Thomas Pynchon, it's like kind of the same thing. It's like if I focus on like all the words, it's just like, man. But if you just kind of read through it and you just kind of let it flow over you, it, it makes more sense in that way, at least to me. And I think it's kind of like this, where if you, if you really focus on all the details, uh, it's probably a slightly different experience than just like just sort of going with it. That's very transcendentalist and uh, beat poets of you there, Toby. It was very deep. Yeah, I no. do my best. <laughs> so, Laura, a question for you. You know, we heard Terry and Paul talking about the the process, as they so adorably called it, of, of making podcasts and how they're able to instantly distribute it to, like, hundreds of thousands of people just by hitting a mouse button. And immediately, you know, I sort of have mixed feelings. I'm delighted, of course, that we're able to do the same thing here. But I also am sort of reminded of... Um, the big self-publishing glut that we sort of got when self-publishing first became a thing and everybody suddenly had a book. You know? right. um, Laura, what do you think, you know, as, as a trained journalist, as an author who's worked with editors and gone through uh, the process, I'm just going to say it that way from now on, of working through the traditional publishing, you know, methods, what do you think of this idea of this instant distribution model that podcasts has brought about? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it some combination of good and bad for, for the genre? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is good and bad because you think about, you know, when the self-publishing sort of boom was going on and everybody was doing it, you know, um, Dan Brown, who started his career here in Exeter, where I live, was selling his books out of the trunk of a car when he started. So, you know, as you're looking at all of these people coming onto the market, 
with podcasts is kind of the same sort of thing. There's some good, there's some bad, some that are going to rise to the top, some that aren't. And we just sort of have to weed through them. I mean, I think there is definitely something to be said, obviously, for working with an editor, working with a team to really go through and fine tune your work before you release it to make sure you're releasing the best possible product that you can. But at the same time, I guess this sort of opens up the field to let people get in without having to go through the traditional sort of hoops that they would have to. And, you know, if something's bad, I'm just not going to listen to it again. So, um, you know, (laughs) though I did get back into Tannis. I started, I didn't like it. Now I do listen to it. And my son's always like, are you listening to that podcast that doesn't make any sense, Mom? <laughs> and there was, I listened to it at karate when he's at karate, and there was a big discussion um, about that. But it is it is sort of compelling in a way that's difficult to explain, right? It reminds me of, like, I don't know, I drink Tab, right? Everybody yeah. makes fun of me at work for drinking Tab. And or Pabst Blue Ribbon. No, I, I drink Tab, you know, that soda in the oh, pink I didn't can. know where you were going with that, but go ahead, yeah, yeah. And people say, you know, what does it taste like? I'm like, it's not good. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't like the way it tastes. Just like Pabst but I can't stop drinking it. Like, I love it. It's a brand that I love, but I can tell you objectively, it tastes like salt. It is not <laughs> good. Tannis is better than Tab, I know, but it's just difficult to explain. And on the self-publishing note, we should also mention that The Martian came out at first as a self-published book. And Fifty so Shades did of Grey. Fifty Shades of, and Ready Player One, which yep. is about to be turned, uh, Ernest Cline, is about to be turned into a huge Steven Spielberg film. Now, Kevin, I know that you're not quite a Tannis listener yet, but you listen to Black Tapes, right? I got you yeah. into listening to Black Tapes. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I I really do like the black tapes, and there's a couple of things here. One, the the, the um, you're right. It 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 is like the X Files in in the um the structure, which makes it great because it can go in all sorts of different directions. It's a device used to sort of carry through you know this mythology. I'll say on the macro level, the writing is great. I mean, it's got this this very intricate. You know, continuing plot that's interwoven. The stories, a couple of the standalone stories, are really scary. Really scary, right? Yeah, it's you know, it's great, and and the production value on those moments that are supposed to be spooky are so lovingly crafted. Like when you know, there's the, you know, and and then the it got dark and the eyes came out. And they, you know, the uh, ethereal noises and the bass, the sound design, the sound design is just really, really great. There's so many layers going on there. I really like that. If I had some loving criticism... It's okay to give loving criticism. Because I really don't want... Yeah, because I'm not I'm not mean, because I love these guys. I really do. I would say, on the micro level, the writing, it could be more refined. I mean, the, the dialogue and stuff is like... Um, Stilted? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think they really could take a cue from two places. One is... Law and Order. My favorite show of all time. And The X-Files, actually. Your because, favorite show of all yeah, time. Because, you, you know, there's a lot of, you know, well, come in. in uh, you know, do you are you enjoying your coffee? And then it's, What is a podcast? What is a podcast? That's that running joke. You know, if you look at every scene from Law and Order, when the cops are interviewing somebody about a murder, they don't stop doing what they're doing. I mean, I know it's New York, but it's like, oh, no, I still have to carry these bags over here. I don't know what she was the other night, but, you know, because um, they just, boom, get in, boom, 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 and it moves right along. We also don't get the scene where they knock on the door and then right. walk in and have to introduce themselves. Right. They just skip over that and get right to the scene. They get just, it, it moves it right along. And what I, I think you know, they learned from the X-Files is where you have two characters that are talking about incredible things. And, and it's also, I mean, Mulder and Scully were, were these really great defined characters, so you knew sort of the tone of how they talked to one another. But it wasn't a lot of 
what do you mean? I, I don't get that. You, you know, repeat yourself about this. They just, you know, there was the one who was the skeptic and there was the one who was the true believer in Dr. Strand is sort of the negative true believer or whatever. Dr. Strand, by the way, sounds like a stone fox to me. Just you think fan. he's a stone fox? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would just say, like, in the scripts, like, you know, uh, Alex shouldn't have any dialogue that's one word yeah. anymore. It's like, and so I saw a boy. A boy? I just think it, it would pick up the pace a little bit. And You're talking about fine-tuning. Fine-tuning and, you know, I think uh, a little more diversity in voices. I think it's uh, in the be- very beginning, all the actors sounded like they were 25. I think in the very beginning. And I but don't, they've gotten I don't so know much this, better. They really have. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the case or not. In the very beginning, it sort of struck me that, like, these are just our friends and we've gotten them together and we're doing this thing. Yeah, kind of. And now it's turned into a thing. And now, and that's what's really fun about it to me is to watch it and to listen to it turn into a thing. He called it the TV for the ears and that's how it feels. Yeah. It feels like the pilot season of a show is now turned into a show, and uh, yeah, I think that I think about when I hear the your criticisms. I just think about basic radio writing, which is different than scene writing on film. The setup is different. You need the the actuality and then the explainer. And if you have to overly explain what the actuality is, you've used the wrong actuality. So like that explaining stuff. Um, shouldn't have to be there because it should just be known and understood and trusting the audience a little bit more. But that's my only sort of, you know, mild critique, too. Now, I used a couple of radio words in that interview. I realized that I'd love you to define. I said Foley a couple of times. What is Foley, Kevin? uh, Foley effects are sound effects that are made in a studio by a live person. They're not things off of a a CD. So it's the guy uh, shooting the gun in the air or or, uh, using a handful of uh, bamboo to make the sounds of a fire crackling, taking two pairs of shoes and and walking them upstairs and uh that's foley foley effects i think the best foley affected podcast i've ever heard was the message yeah and i know exactly the go that, ahead yeah that that panopoly podcast is actually a pay it's actually a promotional podcast paid for by ge believe it or not but it's actually really well done and a very clever podcast that came out a couple of months ago and the the way the foley is done in that show is it, the background stuff really sounds like background stuff and it's uh, people are a little bit off mic when they're supposed to be off mic. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, like you, you, you picked out Limetown and you're right. You know, like they sit down, have a cup of coffee oh. and you hear the saucer and the, t- <laughs> you know, and the sugar and, the, you know, and the, the footsteps across the floor and everything like Wait, that. Wait, let me hand you this paper. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, they just kind of go overboard. In the message, there was this one tiny thing. They had this in the first episode. There's a meeting around a conference table and they're about to, they're about to wrap up and you hear the squeak of a chair. The tiniest, tiniest, it, it wasn't there. It, it said to me, I think these actors put microphones around a conference chair, and they did it there, and that's why it sounds so realistic. And that just tiny, high-frequency pitch, which you, you just recognize, it was just high enough and so far, just far enough in the back and high enough that I was like, yeah, that's, you, it, should, it should transport you to a place, you know, a theater of the mind, and not just be... Overwhelming. I don't think I. I can't speak to Tannis, but I. I don't think uh, Black Tapes does that. The mu- music is great. The music is great. The sound effects are great. Overall, good show. Could use some refining. I think Tannis has a stronger show, and I think. I think you would like it. I think right, you should well. dive in. <laughs> um, so it's simply for the fact that there's a character called Meerkatnip. I mean, that's what keeps me coming sexy back. Sexy hacker named Meerkatnip. It's pretty good. And we can also recommend uh, The Message as well. That was a really interesting show. The acting on The Message was also very good, it's I think. Superior, yeah. This is superior acting on The Message. Bravo to the folks at Panopoly who made that podcast for GE. So finally, you know, I have a little bit of a confession to make. Aside from the things we've been talking about, 
Tannis, the Black Tapes podcast, you know, which is still in, pro- in, in process. I'm a little bit in a rut right now. I don't really have a whole lot that I'm excited about and listening to. I will make one quick plug. Um, it's a little bit self-promotional. I don't work on it directly, but one podcast I am loving is a podcast that are actually doing at this very station where this podcast is recorded and HPR. It's a podcast called Outside In. It's about the environment and outdoors, but it's really not about that. It's really, really good. I recommend Outside In, but again, I've heard all of those episodes and I have nothing right now. Nothing to look forward to, nothing to turn on, uh, nothing to watch, to read. I would love to get a couple recommendations from each of you about what you might be enjoying right now. And then maybe we could link to them on our website and our listeners could also be privy to your entertainment preferences. Toby, what has been on your playlist or reading list lately? What are you into? Uh, I like Skeptoid, which is a, a podcast featuring this guy, Brian Dunning. And they're usually like 15 to 20 minutes and they'll take some mystery. There's like a lot of UFO stuff. But there's also, you know, missing people and pseudoscience and all this stuff. And he kind of spends 15 or 20 minutes from a skeptical viewpoint sort of debunking or explaining or in a couple of cases not – uh, the mystery around it. So it sounds a little bit like the black tapes, but like real life and from the uh, Dr. Strand slash Toby Ball skeptical point of view. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely, I've got a similar kind of outlook towards that stuff, I think, that they, we know. That they do. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, what else is on your uh, watch, play, listen list right now? Well, I just finished a book actually that I thought was pretty good. It is called Unbecoming by Rebecca Sherm. I guess they would call it like a literary suspense novel. It's 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 well written. You know, I think the hard thing for these is always how they end, and uh, and she does she does a good job with that. I, I thought it was pretty atmospheric and, and it was it was a good read. All right, Laura, what about you? Are you listening or watching or reading anything right now that our listeners and I, most importantly and, and most selfishly, should know about and dive into? I think so. So I have been kind of on a Netflix binge because, you know, it's hard to get control of the TV in my house. So if I get into something I really like, I can always watch it on my iPad on Netflix. So one that I just finished this week that I, I really liked was um, River. And it's a BBC series. And like all these British series, there's only like six episodes in a season, which I always find kind of frustrating when I start to get into something. And what I loved about this, the main character is Detective John River and his partner, Stevie. And I don't want to give away, it's hard because I don't want to give away spoilers, but there's a huge mental health component because basically what you're going to find out in the first episode is that River sees dead people. And part of the uh, series is really delving into his mental health and why this is happening. And what was really great about this was um, the mystery that happens has a very satisfying ending at the conclusion of six episodes. And this guy who plays um, River, Stellan Skarsgård, has the best face and facial expressions um, through this series. And then the other thing that I really binged on on Netflix was Bloodline. And I know I'm probably late to the game on this because it came out last year. This was one of those Netflix um, series that they made specifically for Netflix. So I didn't have really high hopes going in. Um, but I picked it because it was kind of a thriller that was set on Key West and in the Florida Keys. So I thought, you know, we're here in cold New England. What a great setting. And it's about the black sheep brother of a family, the Rayburn family that runs like a fancy bed and breakfast down in the keys coming home and it's all about family secrets and 
these family secrets coming to light. It has a great cast as Sissy Spacek. The, her son is Kyle Chandler, who was a uh, Friday Night Lights fame there. He was a coach. And what's great about this show is it's, um, it has a slow build, but once the pace picks up, it is like breakneck speed, and it uses um, very effective flashbacks throughout right from the first episode. I don't think this is too much of a spoiler to say. In the first episode, one of the first scenes, Kyle Chandler's character says, you know, we didn't want to kill our brother. So you really, yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> but you, 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 you got to go with Kyle Chandler. I'm sure if he killed his brother, he had a good reason because he's Kyle Chandler. <laughs> he had a good reason. I mean, I was up until one in the morning and everyone who knows me knows I go to bed at like nine o'clock. So it's good. All right, Kevin, it's time to get your pop culture recommendations. What have you been listening to, watching, reading that I should join you in consuming? You should join me and watch the short run of the new X-Files episodes. Because it just brought back to me what a fantastic show that was. And we t- mentioned it a couple of times here. But I just remember it being the first thing I had seen on television, network television, that was actually scary. And, and in, a, in a very entertaining way. Not, you know, not slash or whatever. And it you know, was derivative of a couple of other kinds of, you know, the anthology shows like The Twilight Zone or Night Stalker. But it was in its own different way i just remember it being like having the most fantastic mythology that it built around uh aliens and abductions and the black oil and the syndicate and i was probably never as crushed by a jump the shark moment as after they came back from the 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 summer where they had the movie and then jumped into the next one and then killed off all the bad guys uh, in the very first episode of the season. I'm like, they just built all these years building to this crescendo and now they've killed everybody. Um, But I, but when the, the, the show came on after, you know, the NFC championship 20 minutes late uh, and it was just, you know, the old X-Files theme. I was just like, wow, I remember there were so many great episodes. There was the monster of the week episodes and there were the, the mythology episodes. So I, you know, I've, the ones that I've seen so far, I really like it. It's got a lot of that flavor. Mulder and Scully are back. Sit down with me. Let's watch it. It's like going home. It is. It's really Toby, nice. I know Toby's an X-Files fan. Yeah. Yeah. No, they've been good. All right. Well, I'm in. I'll, I'll watch The X-Files with you, Kevin. If Only if you promise that if Battlestar Galactica ever comes back, you will watch that with me. Oh, I'm down. I'm down, <laughs> Starbuck. Okay. Now it's time to move Frack. on. Frack! <laughs> watch that fracking show with me, will ya? Now it is time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. <laughs> This week, the NFL revealed an investigation has been ongoing into allegations that Broncos quarterback Peyton Manning has been using performance-enhancing human growth hormones. Al Jazeera America reported a lab shipped the HGH to his wife, implying they were really for Manning, but the report's only source has since recanted his statements. Nevertheless, the NFL's pursuit of Manning once again casts a pall over the Super Bowl as the league looks into whether or not a future Hall of Famer and the game's star attraction is a big old cheater. So here's my question. Since 1983, 333 players have been suspended for using performance-enhancing drugs, and today's football, it's not even news anymore. So is there a double standard in the court of public opinion that works against star players? Or is it fair to judge them based on other star athletes who have revealed to be cheating cheaters who cheat? 
unfair or fair to judge Peyton Manning harshly and make him a cover story every single day between now and the Super Bowl? Kevin, I'm throwing it to you. Now you think because I'm the Tom Brady fan, I'm going to I'm going to crap all over uh, Peyton Manning? Huh? Uh, no, I think you're going to say that Peyton Manning isn't being treated as unfairly as Tom Brady was treated. Oh, maybe I'll say that. <laughs> well, first I, I I actually I I think that the 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 allegations against Peyton Manning probably don't hold up. In fact, even if they did, it's we don't know when in 2011 he allegedly started taking HGH because it wasn't until midway through 2011 it was a banned substance in the NFL. He might have been taking it and it wasn't against the rules. I you know I will note that okay last year again it's the same situation. You've got the two best of all time quarterbacks, each of them going to the Super Bowl. In the two weeks going before that, you have this 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 story about this investigation calling into the integrity, not only of the player, but of the game. Last year, this was the lead story on three television networks at 6.30. And I noticed on this, this story on NBC this week, 20 minutes into the show. I mean, it just is, I, I don't know. So you think there's a double standard against Tom Brady, but not necessarily well, against I, our athletes. I think it probably has to do, if it was, when it's Alex Rodriguez, same thing. Yeah. He gets, you, you know, I think it has something to do with whether you like the personality or not. I don't know why Tom, other than the fact that he wins all the time and he's married to a supermodel. And the Patriots are cheating cheaters who cheat in the past as well. Okay, anyway, so Toby, do you think that there's a double standard when it comes to uh, the media's pursuit of these star We're athletes We're going to talk about this stories. more when we get home, Rebecca. <laughs> do you think that there's a double standard when it comes to media coverage of star athletes and uh, suspicions, allegations, uh, investigations, and they're sort of brought to the front burner? Is there a double standard? There There's clearly is a double standard. You know, Brady, Manning, Alex Rodriguez, you know, all, all these guys are household names. Lance Armstrong. So when something happens to them, Lance Armstrong, you know, it, you know, people don't uh, – people aren't going to know if like Billy Cundiff, if something happens to him or, or you know, so it, it's sort of a non-story I think if it happens – to like a lesser known player, it's like, oh, well, they got caught again. I think the difference in the, the treatment of the two is I, I think it's who the accuser is makes a big difference because with Brady, you had the NFL, which at the time still had like a couple of threads of credibility left. So I think the NFL going after one of its poster boys and its like most successful recent franchise, I think the assumption was there's something there. Like some guy who who's selling human growth hormone, I, I think there that's probably looked at a little more skeptically than allegations from the NFL. I don't know. I mean, I think it's you know it's always kind of suspicious the way these things are timed, like right before the Super Bowl. I mean, my other question is: Has anybody? I mean, is Peyton Manning's wife just huge? <laughs> That's how he hurt his neck. She snapped it on him. <laughs> Laura, do you even know what we're talking about in this crowd of the week say, anymore? I honestly, I feel awful saying I don't care. I don't follow sports. I make snacks. I could care less. My question is just, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about this, I mean, what has happened to professional sports that our athletes feel that they have to do this kind of um, enhancement? I mean, I think that might be the real question here. I actually, Aside from that, I really don't care. <laughs> I have long held the opinion that um, let them cheat. Maybe we should just have the juiced Olympics. Just let everybody take 
every doping thing, blood doping, HGH, anything they want, let them go out there, and we will basically watch the X-Men and the Super Bowl. Why not? Be like the real Space Jam. (laughs) We should probably end it on that note, I'm thinking. Mm, Yeah, I think so. Okay, so Toby, if our listeners want to find you on Twitter and ask you more compelling questions, how can they reach you there? At TobyBallNH. Laura, if our listeners want to tweet to you, um, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. And Kevin, would you be interested in tweeting with some of our listeners? Of course, I always am, at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you'd like us to answer, tweet us or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send an email with your questions or even a voice memo to crimewriterson at gmail.com. And if you love the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps keep us on the charts so other people can find us and listen to us as well. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in the studios at New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with our Amazon link, check out our Buy Our Books page, or make a PayPal or Square donation to support the show. On behalf of all the crime writers, thank you so much for listening. We will catch you later. I double-sided printed this week, so I'm hoping that's not confusing. You always do that. No, I know. And it's always a problem. She's saving trees, Kevin. And did you yeah. staple it as well? No, it's actually binder clipped this week. So okay. that's you, you know when they decided that was a bad idea? 1930, when they said, <laughs> oh, on the first radio station, should we put type on both sides of this paper or just Hush one? Hush now. Okay. <laughs> it's like Limetown in here. It is. <laughs> Is everybody done with their disgusting bodily noises so we can start talking? I I make no promises. (laughs) I got one more, but the microphone's in the wrong direction. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Carry on, Rebecca. Okay. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.